Welcome back to the OBG Med Student Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Tanya Wright, the Clerkship Director at the Penn State College of Medicine, Hershey Medical Center. Over the past few weeks, many of you, as well as our students, have been displaced from clinical interactions because of the novel coronavirus, COVID-19. While this material may not be covered in the APCO learning objectives, I think it's important for us to have a basic understanding of what this disease means in the world of women's health. In order for us to do that, I actually invited a special guest today who will interview me. Um, that guest is the only person that I've been able to not social distance myself from, and that is my husband. So Dr. Wright, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us what you do? Hello, everyone. I am Dr. Atuo Wright, an MD-PhD from Penn State, radiation oncology trained from Duke University. Today, I have the opportunity of uh, talking to my wife, Tanya Wright, about <laughs> her field um, as it pertains to the COVID-19 pandemic ongoing. I thought it would be best for us to cover this topic in a two-part series. And so in the first part and in this episode, we would cover more of the basics so reviewing the nomenclature, the presenting signs and symptoms, laboratory findings, radiographic findings, epidemiology, treatment, and begin to introduce some of the considerations specifically to pregnancy. In the second part of this series, we will actually try to establish a bit more what we know thus far about coronavirus in pregnancy. We will do this by looking at a number of studies that are very current, actually. And we have to be mindful that what we are learning about coronavirus in pregnancy is evolving and is based on very limited studies and very few patients. And so some of what we discuss in some of these papers um, in the subsequent episode may actually be um, found to be not relevant or to be better well established um, with time. And so you want to definitely rely on um, some of the references that we have listed below who continue to update their data and information as they get it. Some of the things that we discuss here should not be necessarily used to guide your clinical management as these are ever-evolving recommendations. I encourage you to stay abreast with these changes as they occur. So with that, let's get started. What is coronavirus? Sure. So I guess by asking what is coronavirus, you mean the novel coronavirus. I just want to clarify some of the nomenclature while we have the opportunity to do so. So corona is actually the Latin word for halo, which describes how this virus actually looks under electron microscopy. There are three very common human coronaviruses that cause the common cold routinely. However, that's not what we're referring to. We are talking about the novel coronavirus, the virus that you've heard in the news, the virus that is responsible for the ongoing global pandemic. The infection, on the other hand, is what is called coronavirus disease 2019, AKA COVID-19. This disease is actually caused by a virus. The virus is the SARS-CoV-2, or Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2, as the name was given back on February 11, 2020. This name was actually chosen because the virus is genetically very similar. It's actually related to the coronavirus that was responsible for SARS outbreak back in 2003. Do you remember that one? I remember yeah, that distinctly. I um, these two viruses are related, 
but they're still very different. Additionally, there is one other human coronavirus that can cause more severe and acute illness, and that is the MERS-CoV, or the mil- middle, sorry, middle East Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS, um, also very genetically similar to the SARS-CoV-2. And because MERS and SARS have been around for many more years, we've actually had the opportunity to learn more about how these viruses behave in pregnancy. And so we'll be able to compare and contrast what we do know about COVID-19 now and what we've learned from history for these other very similarly related uh, coronaviruses. So how did this new, this novel COVID-19 start? So it was first identified in Wuhan, China, back in December of 2019. It is a single-stranded RNA virus, which we think likely started in some zoonotic source. It is apparent that the COVID-19 virus is closely related to two bat-derived severe acute respiratory syndrome-like coronaviruses and potentially started there. Many of the initial cases back in December were linked to a particular food market back in Wuhan. Subsequently, there was person-to-person spread. Eventually, there was community spread via respiratory droplets, and those viral particles start entering the lungs and basically being passed on through communities that way. How does the virus establish an infection in the human body? Ah, yes. So the National Library of Medicine on February 28th, 2020, published that the SARS-CoV-2 virus establishes its infection when the spike or S glycoprotein on the surface of the virus binds to the angiotensin-converting enzyme 2 membrane protein to enter human cells. ACE2 is an enzyme that's attached to the surfaces of cells in multiple organs like the lungs, the arteries, the kidneys, and the intestines, and acts as a regulator of blood pressure. But the receptors in the lungs are currently the understood mechanism um, and thought to be the main source of entry for the coronavirus. So what is the current understanding of the epidemiology. So when I think about epidemiology, some of the questions that I have in my mind is like, what is the incubation period? So what is that length of time that you'd expect from the infection onset to like symptom presentation? And it seems like the approximate um, incubation period is about five days, but it could range from anywhere to from two to 14 days. The majority of these patients will have a non-severe or very mild pneumonia. Um, But 15% of them will have severe disease with hypoxia and respiratory distress, and up to 5% of them will actually become critically ill, resulting in a case fatality ratio of about 1%. Um, We're seeing that that case fatality ratio um, varies depending on the country. For example, we know that the case fatality ratio documented from Wuhan, China, after looking at 72,000 patients, uh, was about 2.3%. Some individuals will actually have ARDS, and that will occur in about 17 to 29% of those patients that are hospitalized. And of those hospitalized patients, that's who, 4 to 15% of them will die. The average age of the patients that are hospitalized currently is between 49 and 56 years, and the majority of those patients tend to have some type of underlying disease. There are very few reports of younger, healthy-aged women and men Um, We do know that it disproportionately affects men more than it does women, Um, but there have been very rare reports of it infecting uh, children. So what should a a medical student understand about this disease process and what 
they should include in a, in a basic HPI. So students, if and when allowed to interact with these patients, because at present we are really keeping our students out of face-to-face contact with patients that are considered PUIs or patients under investigation or positive COVID positive patients. But hypothetically speaking, if they were to take an HPI on a patient, you would want to ask about symptoms like cough as 80 to 100% of patients will present with a cough when infected. Many of these patients will also have a fever. So 59 to 82% of them will present with a fever. Fever. Also, patients will have shortness of breath or dyspnea. You want to ask about URI symptoms, although they present less with these. And then certainly we have a cohort of patients that have GI symptoms as well, such as nausea, diarrhea, uh, vomiting. All of these patients will have some type of radiographic abnormalities of the chest. So whether it be on chest x-ray, you would expect to see some hazy bilateral peripheral opacities. And on CT scan, you will have that classic ground glass opacities and our consolidation. These are really key phrases that I think will ultimately um, be present in those question stems um, on our standardized exams once this becomes a part of our our norm. Um, So you want to be mindful of these things as we're going through this process because this is testable material down the line. Don't you agree? Uh, Yes, um, very much so. This will be on the test in your future. So speaking of testing, um, what patient, how, how is testing performed? Who should be tested? What is the current criteria by which it should be done? Great question. So I want to overemphasize that this is a very dynamic process. Recommendations are changing on the day, if not even more frequently than that. So adhering to the most recent CDC guidelines, um, there should be priorities for patients that are hospitalized who have signs and symptoms that are compatible with COVID-19 um, and also should be a priority should be symptomatic healthcare workers. What we know is that the patients that should not be a priority are patients that are asymptomatic. So I would encourage you to adhere to the most up-to-date guidelines as this is something that is changing frequently. What you should know, however, is that the testing is done through PCR testing of the actual nucleic acid within the COVID-19 structure. Um, The specimens could be obtained from the upper or lower respiratory systems, such as a nasopharyngeal or pharyngeal oral pharyngeal swab can also be obtained from sputum and lower respiratory lower respiratory tract aspirates as well as bronchial alveolar lavage the results are usually given in hours but also up to days depending on the lab in which they are processed yes i can only imagine um yeah currently i think there are two um rt-pcr or immunofluorescence um, can be used in the testing. I think RT-PCR is probably going to be the uh, the process that a lot of labs use because of how quickly it can be done. What are the characteristic lab findings for the patients who are infected with this COVID uh, virus? So COVID-19 infected patients will have uh, certainly some classic findings in their labs. They will have a leukopenia and lymphopenia They'll have an elevated D-dimer, CRP, LDH, ILH, and ferritin, and they can also have elevated LFTs and BUN to creatinine ratio. So as you are an OB-GYN, 
um, I, I think we should dive into um, what what this means for your field. Are there any differences in the re- uh, recommendations for the general public versus those for pregnant women? There is a lot that we don't know and understand with respect to how this virus behaves in the pregnant population. Um, we know that pregnancy state is a state of immune suppression, right? That's the reason That's why correct. our bodies don't expulse a fetus, for example, when it recognizes it as foreign. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a physiologic change and adaptation that our body undergoes during pregnancy. Um, you would expect then that pregnant patients, given their immune suppressed state, based on these physiologic adaptations, that they would be at a higher risk um, for both contracting the illness as well as having more severe outcomes. We have known from studies that came out of Wuhan, China, that this is not necessarily is not necessarily the case. The problem with those studies are is that there are very few patients. Um, and the one study that I will reference um, would be the Chen et al. from 2020, which had only about eight or nine patients enrolled. And we I think we should take some time to kind of dissect that paper. Um, if you if if you agree to kind of look through the data that we do have that supports the outcomes in pregnancy. For now, it is really important that any pregnant patient presenting to the hospital system be asked a very detailed history, including a travel history, including sick contacts, including contacts with known COVID positive patients in the past 14 days. All pregnant patients should be evaluated for symptoms, specifically fever and any signs of respiratory infection. So those signs that we talked about, your cough, your uh, URI, URI symptoms. Any patient that is scheduled to arrive to labor or labor and delivery and or to clinic should be screened before arriving there. So they should be asked key questions um, via the telephone before they arrive. And these are some of the things that we have implemented here at the Hershey Medical Center as well. Any patient that is considered to be a person under investigation should be placed in a single patient negative pressure room. And there are a whole host of other recommendations as well. Just keeping in mind our PPE, our um, protective equipment. So making sure that we are having, we have eye protection, we have uh, our N95 mask if appropriate, um, gloves and so forth. Um, COVID-19 may increase the risk of pregnancy complications. We are unclear about that. However, because there is that risk, all these women should be cared for in a health facility that will closely monitor both the mom and the fetus. Um, we want to institute early isolation and standard contact and airborne precautions and be very, very, very aggressive with infection control procedures. Many of these patients will need supplemental oxygen. They may not need mechanical ventilation unless they are showing very severe signs of um, respiratory failure. But even if they were to have respiratory failure, you'd want to intervene early with mechanical ventilation at that point. Many of these patients are at risk for developing superimposed bacterial infections, so you want to also consider treatment with empiric antibiotics and screening for um, superimposed infections. Being careful not to, to, to fluid overload these patients because of the physiologic changes that occur with pregnancy and being mindful of um, an endpoint of cardiomyopathy as well, which we have seen in the non-pregnant state. Uh, We want to be vigilant of that in patients that are COVID-19 positive in the pregnancy state. There have been many questions about how these patients should be delivered. Well, this should be an individualized approach for every patient. 
It's really unclear if whether delivery will provide a benefit to a critically ill patient. You have to take that on a case-by-case basis. We can dive more into this, especially when we look at that one paper that does have some evidence of um, those uh, few pregnant patients and how they were cared for in Wuhan, China. Finally, this should be a multidisciplinary or team-based approach. And some of the people, the players that come to mind for me are your infectious disease doctors and your your special pathogens team. Um, Also, local and state health officials, your MFM or maternal fetal medicine physicians, your obstetrician, your neonatology staff, anesthesiology staff, as well as nursing staff. So based on the current understanding, what is what is their considerations? What considerations should be made for the uh, the newborn? We have to really think about how we will decrease the risk of transmitting the virus after birth. Right. So the same precautions that we will typically take uh, with an influenza positive mom, we have to give real consideration to here. So according to the CDC, to avoid the risk of transmission of the virus from the mother to the newborn, facilities should consider temporarily separating the mother who has been confirmed COVID-19 or who is a a person on their investigation from their baby until the mother's transmission-based precautions are discontinued. So these measures are typically done for patients that, are, like I said, have TB, for example, or even influenza. Um, but we really have to consider that here. Um, that might be particularly challenging because we're we're saying that moms should be separated from their neonate for up to fourteen days. Um, in situations That's where, tough. yeah, in situations where it can't be done with a you know separate rooms, um, they're even recommending kind of keeping them six feet away from each other within the same room. So that would be hard. You know, we would be asking moms to wear face masks and practice excellent hand hygiene. Um, And you may wonder, what does this mean for breastfeeding moms? You know, um, breastfeeding moms, again, CDC recommends that um, moms that are interested in breastfeeding that are positive should be encouraged to do so, but with expressed milk. So with pumping making sure that they practice good hand hygiene, that they're cleaning and sterilizing the pumping supplies, they're wearing a mask, and that someone else who is unaffected is actually feeding that neonate, that expressed milk. Once mom has cleared the virus, mom may be able to actually nurse directly to the breast if if she so desires. You know, this has been really great. I am so grateful that you did this for us today, just really helping me to think through um, some of the information that we do have um, with respect to COVID-19 for pregnant patients. You know, we don't have a lot of data, but I want to pick your brain a bit. You know, you're an MD, PhD, you have a science-driven brain, you're a physician scientist. I want you to kind of walk me through through a, a couple of studies and just kind of see what we can figure out based on what we have. And yeah. I'm hoping to do that in the follow-up podcast in the series. What do yeah, you think? Yeah, I, I think that would be great, you know. Um, no matter what we are faced with, there we can also draw upon historical information to um, to learn more. Thank you so much for being here and talking this through with us. Back to social distancing. Thank you very much.